The word super is closely related to the German word uber, meaning a supreme example of a thing. When Jerry Siegel first created Superman, he was an unstoppable villain, hell-bent on destruction. Leopold and Loeb thought of themselves in that way, a criminal duo beyond the law. In reality, they were just a couple of highly intelligent chuckle fucks. Y'all listening to Old Timey Crimey, crimes from the golden age of yesteryear. Now, here's your hosts, Christy and Scott. It's old timey crimey. I'm Christy. I'm Scott. And I'm Amber. And how's everybody doing this week? Hmm, I'm cuddling. <laughs> He's doing adorable kitty-like head motions, just for those of you who cannot see him. It's really bothering the fuck out of you, isn't yes. it? Yes, yes it is. It's like, I don't like Scott when he's happy. I like Scott when he will do crimes with me. <laughs> I mean, I'll be happy about it, just... There'll be cuddly crimes now. Oh, God. <laughs> she really hates this. Now, do you hate this more or less than the child voice? I don't know. <laughs> what if I combine the two? Oh, no. I'm so happy. <laughs> then we're going to have a new murder for next week. <laughs> okay, not doing that again. Because <laughs> I take everything Amber says uh, very seriously. How's your week been, bud? It's been it's been pretty good. I discovered a new podcast I'm like so into because it is so Christy. <laughs> it Ooh. is so Christy. Is it called That's So Christy? It really should be. It's actually called On Claire. That's E-N space C-L-A-I-R. And let me just pull up the description so that I don't like do anybody in injustice or miss anything. But uh, when I first heard about this, I was like, oh, that's 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 the one for me. Uh, come on, Spotify. Like, I'm, I'm curious. Like, I'm going to say uh, true literary crimes in history. What do you think it's going to be? I'm thinking it's something French and fancy. It is a podcast about forensic linguistics, literary detection, language mysteries, cryptography, codes, language and the law, linguistic crime, undeciphered languages, and more from past to present. Ooh, You're I, closer. I, You're closer. You win. I <laughs> am going to have to check that out because forensic linguistics. I think I was the one that introduced you to you forensic were, linguistics. You were, Yes. There, uh, I'll let Amber know about this and our new listeners. Uh, I got very interested in forensic linguistics uh, whenever I heard about a crime. It was a kidnapping. And they had a list of suspects and they brought in the ransom note to a forensic linguistic. Mm -hmm. And the, the linguistics guy looked at it and went, which one of our suspects is from Akron, Ohio? And they went, okay, this guy goes, go get him. He's the guy. They had asked to put the money on the devil strip. Mm-hmm. What's the devil strip? The devil strip is the piece of grass between the sidewalk and the street, but only in Akron, Ohio. Yep. It is absolutely fascinating. Some of the stuff they do, um, they do the uh, <laughs> Belle du Jour who was the uh, Diary of a London Call Girl sort of mystery in the early 2000s, and then go into, uh, like, the the Pendle Witch Trials, which, I mean, I, I, I know I've been listening to uh, Unobscured recently, so I was like, oh, you know, that's all Salem Witch Trials. This one, I learned some stuff that just had me absolutely flabbergasted. I was like, whoa, I had no idea. And then my favorite, when she said she was going to be doing this one, I was like, I'm literally sitting there listening to the podcast as I'm getting ready for school. And I'm like, oh, I can't wait until I get there. 
an episode on swearing. Fuck yes. <laughs> yes. Fuck yes. Fuck yes. It was fantastic. And then I'm saving... It's it's only in season one right now, um, and there's a trailer for season two, but the last three uh, episodes I'm saving for Jackson and I to listen together because I think he might be interested because it's about Enigma, the mechanical cipher. Ooh. Yeah, so him being into cryptography and stuff, I have a feeling that he'll be into that. But yeah, as soon as I found this, I was like, oh, yay. Now, has Jackson ever taken a stab at Kryptos? I'm sure he's 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 got his master's in information security, okay. <laughs> so he's probably done something. I don't know. Kryptos is a sculpture outside of the CIA oh, that okay. is completely in code, and it's yeah, it's. I don't think anybody's officially beaten it. If he hasn't taken a stab at it, he either probably learned about it in school or has read about it in the Hacker Quarterly. Mm. It's a thing. <laughs> I'm not surprised. <laughs> So, uh, I guess, uh, I don't want to talk about these two. (laughs) They they were after, they were after attention. That's, that's all. They wanted to prove how cool they were and how much more awesome than they were than everybody else. And I, I don't want to talk about them because it's just giving them the fucking attention they wanted. I know from beyond the grave. And yet it is a true crime podcast. What we do is we talk about true crime and this does happen to be the episode that we've all or the 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 case that we've all researched this week so so i'm not going by their real names dickless and shitlips (laughs) (laughs) they actually it's not far from their nicknames Mm -hmm. of dick or dicky and babe dicky and babe dicky and babe assholes (laughs) complete and utter assholes we're speaking of course about nathan leopold jr and richard loeb assholes extraordinaire and just the fucking ego on these guys mm-hmm. and the really the the whole uh case would come to be known as just leopold and Loeb, just them by their last names it's they're they're inextricable from each other you really you can't have leopold without Loeb. you can't have Loeb without leopold and so it's very uh it's it's, it's one of those things like a, a duel we haven't had hmm is this our first time we've had two or more than one person killing i feel like no, no. No, we did the Wineville chicken coop murders. There was at least two murders. Yeah, yeah that's true. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Oh, people suck. Yeah, so, they do. These people sucked, and they were, yes, as we said, uh, Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb. Leopold was born on November 19th, 1904. Loeb, what? what the hell is up with his middle name? Oh, Fruden, Fr- Frudenthal? Freudenthal? Freudenthal? Something like Freudenthal. that? Freudenthal. Nathan Freudenthal Leopold. Freudenthal. Freudenthal. <laughs> Whenever you name your kid Freudenthal, I think like you should be responsible for thirty percent of the murders he commits. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so there, um, yeah, he's born. Leopold is born November nineteenth, nineteen o four. Loeb is born June eleventh, nineteen o five. Both of them in Chicago. Uh, Leopold was born to a wealthy immigrant Jewish family. He is second generation. His, I, I think that's how it goes. I looked up the Wikipedia article to try and figure it out, and it said, eh, it, nobody really knows. It's, you know, his father could have been second generation because his parents came over, or he could be second generation. So, but one way or the other, his grandparents were the ones who came over uh, to America. His father was really big in business. Uh, supposedly, Leopold said his first words at four months, which I call bullshit. His first words were, oh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
he was big into languages, so there is that. He claimed to have studied 15 and was fluent in five. He was also big into ornithology. He actually had a part in identifying the Kirtland's warbler. I'm sorry, as a, as a complete nerd, I just have to say dork. Uh, but he showed no hesitancy in killing the birds for his collection, the birds that he would find, and his governess was kind of shocked by this. Which is really kind of sucky because the Jack Pine Warbler, also Kirtland's Warbler, same bird, different different uh, name for it, it was almost extinct 50 years ago. It yeah. was on its way to going extinct whenever, whenever Leopold was studying it. And it's come back. It's had a comeback. Yeah. And here's the thing. Leopold is actually the one that kind of figured out why is this bird going extinct. He found out there was parasitic nesting going on. Uh, of the brown-headed cowbirds. Uh, parasitic nesting, for those that don't know, uh, a a bird will go in, look at the nest and go, sweet nest you got there. Be a shame if somebody fucked up all your eggs and laid their own in it. Yep. And that's what they do. And that's how cuckoos are born. Cuckoos are the best example of parasitic birds out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's and he was part of discovering this. Uh, as uh, Amber said, his friends and f- family nicknamed him Babe, which is kind of weird if you're like, maybe it's okay until you get maybe age seven or so, mm. maybe even earlier. After that, it just feels awkward. Sammy Davis Jr. is the only person capable of pulling that shit off. Hey, babe. You know, yeah, that's, yeah. that's it. Babe Ruth. I, I think that was more along the lines because of, the, uh, of his childish appearance. Yeah, I know, but, like, I'm just saying that, like, a dude can, in in this day and age, pull off a nickname like Babe, because it wasn't used like we use it now. Like, hey, Babe, can you grab me that? Like, it wasn't used like that. So, Babe was like, you're a stud. Like... <laughs> Look at that Babe over there. Look at the set of tits on him. <laughs> <laughs> So he was the youngest graduate of the University of Chicago at age 19. His mother died when he was very young. He was undersized with rather bulging eyes. Oh, I have that his mother died in 1921, so I guess he would have been 17-ish. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because mine just says that he was young. Uh, what else do I have? Bulging eyes. Yes, the bulging eyes was kind of a thing, like... That's... Yeah, he was, he was weird looking. He was he was a little weird looking, by all accounts. But yeah, I, I... Hmm. Amber has stacks and stacks of transcripts here. I'm, like, I'm, like, I'm, I'm looking at like Amber's notes and I'm fucking stunned. And I'm looking over here at mine and going like, you need to step it the fuck up, Scott. Well, no, like I have a lot on him, but mostly when he was older and then his accounts of everything. Well, that's I mean... after he was done. But yeah, from from. From what I understand, they were questioning both men about their childhoods, and they were like, no, we're not going to talk about that. So there's very little that we know about them before they were 18 and 19 and did these horrible things. There are rumors that one of them was molested by their maid. Rumors that he was uh, molested by his governess, an Alsatian woman named Sweetie, and that was uh, Leopold. So mm. so that might have been might have been happening uh, so, and then Loeb was the second of four sons. Uh, his father was a lawyer and the vice president of Sears Roebuck. So we're talking some, some families with some power and some influence and plenty of money if oh, you and, look at their houses. Yeah, and it wasn't which one just... one of them you can't now, but... It wasn't just his father. Uh, Loeb's uncle, Jacob Loeb, 
he was the president of Chicago Board of Educators at the time. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, there's some there's some power. This isn't just one person accidentally stumbling into power. There's like dynasty capability going on here. Yes, absolutely. So Loeb skipped several grades. He was admitted to the University of Chicago at age 14, and then eventually he transferred to the University of Michigan, where he would graduate at the age of 17, and he became the school's youngest graduate, sensing a trend here. Mm -hmm. He really liked history and would go on to do some graduate work in it, Um, and he also liked tennis and detective novels. He was big into crime and true crime, and um, we're all slightly uncomfortable right now. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, look, okay, there any time that they go, "Oh, uh, he was really into true crime. That's why he did it." No, no, no. Look, just because something is enjoyable, do, you know, Ted Bundy likes skiing. Uh, Jeffrey Dahmer liked recliners. I like recliners. <laughs> like one of Jeffrey Dahmer's biggest regrets was that he didn't get a nice recliner to masturbate to the severed heads in his living room to. <laughs> So, I like recliners. I don't masturbate to severed heads. But you want one that's comfortable to masturbate in. Exactly. So, I get it. Exactly. Just because somebody likes something that I like doesn't mean that I'm the bad person. They, no, yeah, of course they, not. Right. They but ruined it from that end. There's a, there's a difference between liking recliners and literally liking, like, not that I, no shame on anybody who likes true crime. Hello, hi, mm-hmm. right here. Yeah. We do this. But I'm just saying that, like, we're all like... I don't want this person who committed a horrible thing to like the same thing that I'm enjoying and actually currently, you know, and fascinated by and actually currently talking about. Right. It doesn't bother me at all. Lots See, of people like pizza. They're, they're, Again, it's apples to oranges. Right. <laughs> or pizza to true crime. Okay. So, to get this to another level, I love Transformers. I don't make any secret of it. I, I still collect them. I'm in my mid-40s and I still collect Transformers. A while back, a Transformers collector... Got into big trouble. And he, they kind of went, they, they went online and they propositioned this 14-year-old girl online who was also a Transformers fan. So it became this thing for a little while of the stigma of like, you know, a lot of the cops that busted this guy actually went, oh, you know, you know, he collects toys. What do you expect? You know, no, it's not the toy collecting. It's this guy was a fucking pervert. I think we can, yeah, it's, it's things like that. And also we can equate it to when, you know, somebody shoots up a school and, mm-hmm. oh, they liked video games. Yeah. You know, it's it's that that idea. Right. I mean, Jackson has killed so many nannies in The Sims. Oh, so many okay. nannies <laughs> in The Sims. There was a pause. <laughs> Scott's going to edit out in The Sims. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And yet he's never killed one in real life. What do you know? You know, it's not, It's that's not the influence. Some people, if I think, if they have tendencies like Leopold and Loeb had, especially, you know, like Loeb was drawn to it because he liked to do it. And some people like to study it. So it can be an outlet. It can be a fascination. Um, it doesn't mean you have to go out and act it out in real life. And it doesn't mean that, you know, the studying of it made you act it out in real life. It just means that maybe you were using that to, to inform you. And it's not like we can erase all the true crime or take away all the video games. So. Right. Nor would I want that. Exactly. Now I want to play The Sims. So uh, the two families lived about just a couple blocks away from each other. And if you added their family money together today, it would be worth $150 million. So again, money, power, not in short supply here. And their neighborhood 
was just a hive and continues mm-hmm. to be a hive of power. Notable residents of Kenwood, where they grew up, on the Chicago South Side, Louis Farrakhan, Muhammad Ali, Barack and Michelle Obama were from there. Mandy Patankin. I love him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mandy Patankin's great. If, it, one of his very uh, underrated movies, Alien Nation. If you've never seen Alien Nation with him and James Caan, fantastic film. And oddly enough, Muddy Waters. Hmm. Interesting collection yeah. of people. Yeah, indeed. So in 1920, Leopold uh, and Loeb get to know each other. Um, they discovered that they're both interested in crime and Leopold, he is all about, as you may have maybe gathered a little bit from Scott's intro, uh, the idea of Ubermenschen from Nietzsche and that's the Superman and the basic idea. Now this is a real super boiled down, highly uninformed in philosophy concepts that I'm about to dole out here. Basic idea of the Ubermensch is that God is dead. So without God providing those values, we're in danger of becoming nihilistic. So having no values. So the goal of humanity has to be to create slash become, depending on if you're a man or a woman, the Ubermenschen who will then create new values. And if the Ubermenschen does this, then it justifies any action he might take. And I think where Leopold took a hard left at Albuquerque was when he made that idea to it justifies any action he does if he's an ubermensch. Um, and really, I think the idea is it justifies any action you might take to create those values. Not if you create those values, you can get away with murder. Mm-hmm. So um, He saw it as a passport instead of a responsibility. Exactly, yes. And so in a letter to Loeb, he gives his version of the ubermensch. Uh, quote, a superman is on account of certain superior qualities inherent in him, exempted from the ordinary laws which govern men. He is not liable for anything he may do. I think I think what Nietzsche was going for whenever he talked about the Ubermenschen, which I do not I do not partake in the idea of the Ubermenschen. I think we're pretty much all on an equal playing field, ninety percent, ninety nine percent. There are some very talented individuals out there. But in that case, I think what he was more along the lines of saying is they don't it's it's not to kill one person, it's to send people into battle for personal freedoms, sending someone to their death. They are without reproach from that, you know, in the pursuit of of uh, of a better world, not killing a kid. Yeah, yeah. Leopold is just basically this teenager getting obsessed with this philosophical thing and getting it all wrong mm-hmm. is the problem here. So uh, around uh, 1921 or 1922, they're both living, uh, they're both going to the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor, and uh, they're living together there until Loeb joins Zeta Beta Tau and moves into their frat house. And they have this really, really intense relationship. Um, Leopold at one point, and there's a, a letter where he basically lays all this out, considered killing Loeb because he thought that Loeb had broken his trust. He basically says, you know, at one point I, I thought about trying to kill you. And at, at one point he also locked and it's all detailed in the same letter. This was what part of what the letter was about. He locked Loeb in a room and wouldn't let him out. Uh, there was a lot of fascination on 
uh, Leopold's part about Loeb. He basically, he, he, you know, he thinks that he can become the, the, the Superman, but he really thinks that Loeb is like going to be the ultimate Superman for some reason, even though I don't think Loeb is quite as intellectual as Leopold. So it's kind of funny, like, you know, he, he not, no shade on detective novels, right, you know, right. masters in genre fiction here. So, <laughs> but you know, the, 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 his interests were a little bit more pedestrian, I would say. I, whenever, and no spoilers intended here, but I think really you have to go, which one is the Uber mention? If any of them, like if either of these are the Uber mention, it's the one that doesn't get himself killed. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the two, they do start with petty crimes. They're breaking into frat houses and stealing stuff like knives, a camera, a typewriter mm-hmm. that will come up later. Then they did some arson. Oh, I bet they did. Those cheeky bastards. Those cheeky chuckle fucks. You know what? That's illegal in Georgia, arson. They make you marry that girl. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely done. Thank you. I think Amber's starting to discover why I bullet point everything. <laughs> she's got so many pages. She's like I grabbing do. the highlighter. That's why I put the highlighters there, man. Well, I don't want to ruin anything, so I'm going to save that point for later. That's fine. That's fine. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I definitely want to bring it up. Um, but I, I do have a couple of things about their relationship that oh, I find yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah. So it is actually proven that they were having sex. Mm-hmm. So um, Uber sex. Uber sex. <laughs> Back then, it was not sex in a ride chair. Yeah. Uber so, Fulkensteinens. One of the things that I found fascinating that, that was Leopold was actually kind of obsessed with Loeb. He was jealous of the food he ate and the water he drank because it became part of his being. Jesus wow. Christ. That is a quote. That is intense. Holy shit. Leopold was also irked by Loeb's inferiority and immaturity. So they argued Often. You only speak seven languages. I speak 15. You're so beneath me. I want to become part of you. (laughs) So I I have a theory here that Leopold had this idea of he wanted what he wanted Loeb to be. And he was in love with that and also probably had the physical attraction. But then when Loeb couldn't live up to it, that's when problems started occurring. Leopold was the one with the frog eyes, right? Yeah, Leopold was the weird looking one. Here's a, here's a theory. They said they had a king-slave relationship. I see. Oh, my. Here's here's a bit of a psychological theory. Now, I'm no psychologist by any stretch of the imagination. But I wonder if Leopold looked at Loeb and just kind of thought somewhere in deep in his subconscious, I want to inhabit that body because my brain is stuck in this one. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I absolutely agree. Um, because they actually said that Leopold often played slave to King Loeb because he was attractive and charismatic and people followed him. But Leopold also didn't think he was as smart as, as he was. And I'm sorry, Leopold seems to be the more intelligent of the two. I, I like agree. I said, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, Leopold would try to sort of emulate Loeb's charisma and charm and everything. And he would, it would just fall completely flat. Like socially, he was not great you know he wasn't he was not the life of the party yeah saying all this stuff it's it's kind of weird it goes back to the hex hollow murders in my mind there's almost like saying that he wants to be part of like him 
and is jealous of the food he eats and it's because it becomes part of him. There's almost some sort of like chaos magic spells going on here. Yeah, it's very it's very strange and that's like an, it's a, a cultish. And that's an unhealthy level of attachment to somebody. Like who even thinks of that? I'm jealous of the food you eat. That's fucking weird. That's very weird. It's just gonna end up coming out. I mean, you know, it's 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 not pretty on the other side. You know, like I, is that in relation to their their gay sex or my dearest well, lobe? But a, but. <laughs> my dearest lobe, the rusty bridge we had last night was fantastic. <laughs> Were I to be the watermelon you eat so that I could become part of you and squirt forth from your insides into the toilet bowl. Squirt forth? We had to? Okay. Yeah, I, I right. said it. You said it. I want to be the runny love of your buttocks. No, no, you're going to stop now. We're going to continue. <laughs> don't, um, please don't use the toilet paper on me. So, <laughs> moving along. I, I know I know that like both Leopold and Loeb, like, they were doing these... They were like, doing, I stole a typewriter. Oh, I stole this pack of envelopes. Why isn't the media covering this? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. They, yeah. they were upset that it didn't get any attention, which is just, you're, they're called petty crimes yeah. for a reason, dudes. Mad typewriter thieves <laughs> on the loose. Well, and that, I think that's why they escalated to arson, though, because they wanted mm-hmm. to be covered by the news and they started lighting things on fire and nothing happened. And they figured, a, a fire in Chicago, surely somebody will pay attention to this. <laughs> no. No. Little tip for all you pro criminals out there if you want to grab attention by stealing a typewriter, you steal the typewriter, you go to the tallest building you can, and then you chuck it out the window. <laughs> That's how you get attention. Yeah. <laughs> we probably shouldn't be giving pro tips to No, no. Yes, from above, smash I, I the think that that is probably terrible, <laughs> terrible information to share. This is a bad idea, and we at Old Timey Crimey do not support you doing this. And yet endorse it wholeheartedly. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. No. Um, only Scott. Only Scott. Scott's the only one who's going to go on trial for this. <laughs> Civil suits. So uh, in 1923, November to be specific, they decide they want to commit the, quote, perfect crime, unquote. I'm saying you already did it. You didn't get caught with the typewriter. Yeah, exactly. You didn't get caught. You committed the crime. Done. And let's they, move on. Yes, let's move on with our lives and um, people can live and nobody's heart will be broken and yeah, et cetera. So... Uh, they start planning. They also want to, uh, as part of this crime, kidnap someone and collect a ransom. They have this whole convoluted plan, which I did not bother with to, for collecting the ransom because it doesn't even really get started. It basically is a whole bunch of different steps to try to keep them as removed as possible from the collection while still being able to get the money. And it, it's it's overly complex in my mind. Well, I think and, it was ba- not, there was bound to be a kink in the in the Not in to the say plan. that I'm a sociopath or anything, but like reading this, I found about 18 places where they could have done better. Yes. So this was not a perfect crime. They didn't even do it well. No, no. Um, so basically, yeah, they, they want to kidnap somebody, murder them so that they can't, you know, that the victim can't point the finger at them for the kidnapping. And then this murder would then verify that they are indeed supermen. So they delve into seven months of planning for this not very well done crime. It was so dumb. (laughs) They're 19 and 18 at the time. I could have done better at 19 or 18. You could have done better at 12. I know. I know. I had I had places to hide the body by the time I was 13. Like, I'm disappointed. With how smart these guys supposedly were, this is the dumbest shit I've ever seen. It is pretty dumb. 
And what happens is on May 20th, 1924, they start the real prep. Everything's really starting to put the plans into action. Um, they decide that they want to pick an adolescent boy, although they've considered a, po- a couple of possible candidates. They don't have anyone real specific in mind, except that at one point they did consider Loeb's younger brother, which is just like... <sighs> okay, so that coal in place of your heart, does it at least keep you warm, maybe? Jesus. Nope. So they uh, take a chisel and they bind it up with some tape. They get some hydrochloric, hydrochloric acid, some ether, and some rope. Oh, there's there's a big fucking problem right there. You, whenever you're getting rid of a body, acid is the last thing you want. You want something that's a base. Lie. Pigs. Right. right. You want a base. Acid is really good for breaking down inorganic material. If... But you know what? They wanted to disfigure. Right. That was what the acid was supposed to be for, is to disfigure the face so that it could not be recognized easily. Still, Drano would have done a better job because it would have eaten away at the organic material. That's why Drano... When did Drano a... come... When was Drano invented? I don't know, but I know that like sodium sodium chloride would have been Yeah, like there's better stuff. Yeah. Than... Yeah. No, but the, I mean, the murder weapon they chose was a a chisel, a fucking chisel, like of all the things that you could pick to kill somebody with. A chisel. A chisel. Like the only thing I can think of stupider would be a baguette. I, you know what? <laughs> they might have been more successful with that, honestly. Drano was invented in 1923. My God. <laughs> the same year. <laughs> well, right the year before, because it was 1924. Oh, okay. But the, yes. year, the year that they started planning. So it was around when they started planning. They yeah. should have written it in. And it was yeah. probably much stronger because nobody gave a shit about human life back then. It probably had all kinds of stuff in there, like cocaine and... <laughs> the cough syrup, dude, just get a bottle of cough syrup and be like, hey, buddy, chug this. <laughs> It was coke and morphine. Like, it's, I'm pretty sure it would have killed him. Yeah, you you want some really fucked up stuff. Not to get too off track here. Look up the look up the history of paint thinner. Oh my god, it gets fucked up. Wow, it gets really fucked up. It drove a man mad because this he the guy the guy was really really convinced his house was haunted. And so he created this concoction that he thought he could spray on the walls to get rid of the ghosts. And instead he made paint thinner. So instead, it like as this paint thinner went down, it made like the silhouette of a ghost. Like it just that, that vague silhouette. And the guy just went fucking nuts. Oh my God. That's slow descent into madness. That <laughs> paint thinner. That is amazing. So they also get uh, some hip boots and gags from the Leopold house. And the little hand buzzer thing, a rubber chicken. (laughs) I just picture Loeb coming back with like the hand buzzer, the rubber chicken, fake poop. Not those kind of gags! (laughs) And they use a certain Underwood portable typewriter to write the ransom note uh, notes, which they come up with together. That's a, a joint effort there. They rent a car. Leopold used the synonym Morton G. Ballard. That sounds so fake. That sounds so fake. I I thought maybe, like I put it into an anagram generator because these would be the two types of guys that would go, oh, you you rearrange it and it spells going to kill Bobby Franks. (laughs) (laughs) Spoilers. (laughs) Um, And uh, this Morton G. Ballard, who is fictional, obviously worked for Mr. Mason. 
So the car rental place had to basically verify your employment and not having, you know, the internet or anything available. They basically were like, what tool do we have at our disposal? We have a phone. So they called the number that they were given for Mr. Mason. And it really was Loeb sitting at a lunch counter who darted to grab the phone before the waitress could, which is kind of awkward. Like, that's kind of like... It's for me. <laughs> no, I'll take this. I'll take this. Do you have another line? Can I, can I take this upstairs maybe and get some privacy? So uh, Loeb then uh, confirms that he is Mr. Mason and Mr. Ballard works for him and is one of his best employees. And I can just imagine the smug look on his face when he did it. They rented, uh, one article said maroon, but then one that I thought was maybe a little more reliable said a green Willis Knight automobile. Somebody was colorblind. Yeah. Red, green. There you go. Mm-hmm. I saw green was was the one that I, I got. Yeah, I actually had maroon in there when I saw green in a more reliable source. I was like, erase. Yeah, but yeah, that, I'm, I'm guessing the witnesses were colorblind. Honest, <laughs> honest to God. Honest to God, you think one out of out of a hundred men are colorblind? Mm-hmm. You know, it's pretty common. Yeah, maroon. Uh, I mean, there's three people, three people where I worked that are colorblind. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, maroon, green. Yes, they are pretty close to the same color for me. I put green stop signs all around the building, and they haven't caught on yet. <laughs> so damn you. <laughs> they, uh, yeah, this was the same model as Leopold's car. So, and they also concocted an alibi that involved bird watching, drinking in the park, and dinner, which all sounds like a, a, a nice date until you get to also cruising for girls. So this was going to be their, their alibi that they spent this time together, and that way they could both be free and clear. I like to think, like, them trying to, like, because obviously the only people Leopold and Loeb is left with have been Leopold and Loeb. No, they actually, they had girlfriends. Really? Well, Poor, desperate, horny, unfulfilled girlfriends. Probably, yes. But, I mean, they had beards, at least. <laughs> they had beards. That's At one point, yeah, in, in his, uh, I think it's in his confession, Leopold mentions an actual girl okay. that, that he was uh, he was going on a date with. Oh, I was, uh, I have a name. Leopold's girlfriend was Susan Laurie. Oh, so there we go. So he actually did have a girlfriend while sleeping with Leopold. Yeah. Well, keeping up Whoa, appearances. Sorry. It's so, the first names, everything's so, stop it, everything's so similar. There, it's just, and yeah, it's, it's, it's a heck of a case for typing because Loeb almost every time started was Leob and then Mm -hmm. Ward was like, no, squiggly red line, squiggly red line of incorrectness. So they are on May 21st, 1924. They start cruising around the Harvard school, which is a private primary school. They cruise for about two hours until they find Bobby Franks around 5 p.m. as he's walking home from umpiring a youth baseball game. Bobby Franks is about 14 at the time. He was uh, a second cousin of Loeb, so he knew, uh, at least Loeb. Uh, his his family mansion was right across from the Franks' house. Um, or, no, sorry, Loeb's family mansion was right across from the Franks' house, and... Bobby and Loeb had played tennis together at, at, at Loeb's house. Bobby was reluctant at first uh, to get in the car, and uh, which he, and then Loeb. Hey guys, I don't know. <laughs> no, don't do it. Well, he was only a couple blocks from home, and yeah. he's like, "No, it's okay. Like, I'm fine. I'm I'm close." 
And that, that guy with his eyes are kind of creeping me out. Well, he didn't know him, and he's like, I don't really know him, and I'm good. I'm, I'm close. Get like, in. I want to talk about a tennis racket. Exactly. Yep. Hello, Bob. Come in a minute. I want to ask you about a tennis racket, is what Loeb said. And then Bobby got in the car. And dun, this is dun, dun. where we don't know exactly what happened, because they both gave up the other one. Um, although there are some, some, there's evidence pointing one way and evidence pointing another. What it seems like is that Leopold drove while Loeb sat in the back seat. And from there, because with Bobby Franks in the front seat, he hit uh, Bobby in the head repeatedly with a chisel, which knocked him out and then pulled him into the back seat and gagged him. And not long after, Bobby Franks died of suffocation. He actually hit him four times. Okay. Uh, it was the fourth blow that the chisel made a big gash on his forehead, which is when he started bleeding everywhere. Um, and so then spreading across the seat, the seat splashed onto Leopold's trousers and spilled onto the floor. So Bobby was still awake mm -hmm. at this point. Um, and they were surprised that it didn't actually knock him out. So then they pulled him into the back of the car jammed the rag down your throat, as you said. And I'm imagining there was ether on the rag, too. They tore off a large strip of tape and taped his mouth shut with the rag going down his throat. And finally, finally, he stopped crying. It's one of those things, I don't know the height of Bobby Franks, but there are certain people that are incredibly hard to knock out. Mm -hmm. um, as a matter of fact, uh, there was a pilot who was missing both of his legs who could not be knocked out. He could do maneuvers in the plane that no human being should be able to do. Wow. Because your legs hold half your blood. <laughs> so he, he would, he was missing his legs. He could pull off tight maneuvers that would cause other, other pilots to pass out because the blood had nowhere to go. Mm -hmm. So shorter person, adrenaline, you know, not a lot of place for the blood to go. Well, I can also tell you, like, I have never actually been knocked unconscious. I have a very thick skull. I have knocked other people out mm -hmm. with my head. Um, but, yeah, I, I've never been knocked out. So, like, I'm one of those people that you could probably hit me in the head with a chisel, and I'm going to be just fine. I've been I've been stunned. I've never been knocked unconscious. Um, but it's, I'm wondering, your natural hair color is red. And I'm wondering if it might have something to do because it takes 10 times the amount of anesthetic for redheads. Anesthesia. Yeah. Or anesthetic, maybe. Maybe both. <laughs> I think it's both. I think it's both. But it takes 10 times the amount of of knockout juice <laughs> that it does for normal people. Yeah, I know normal. my dentist hates me. He hates me. He always thinks I'm lying. And I'm like, I can still feel everything you're doing. May I have more Novocaine, please? And I have had that moment, too. And <laughs> I am not necessarily a redhead. Red hair does run rampant in my family. My mom's side of the family looks like a freaking Irish convention of some sort. Mine, too. Um, they all look like Conan O'Brien. Exactly. <laughs> I but Conan. Uh, I do get oddly mistaken. I, like, right now, my hair is red, fading to blonde. But that's obviously artificial. Um, I do get mistaken for a redhead. It, my hair can be any color. I've had my hair brown, blonde, purple, and I've been mistaken for it. I've had people call me a redhead. I'm like, I can't. I can't not be a redhead, even though I've never been a redhead. So, so yeah, there is that. There's also the awkward angle of hitting somebody from the back seat. And also, you don't have a lot of leverage when you have the roof of the car and then the yeah. head. So you probably only are getting, like, 
about a foot and a half of momentum, maybe. Yeah, it's not very. It's it's just not a very smooth motion why, or powerful. Why in the world they wouldn't have chosen a knife is beyond me. I still don't get the chisel. I don't right? understand the chisel. And then they wrapped it in tape to make it a little more dull. Like it, I'm not sure what the point was there. It's a weird thing because the only the only reason I can think of to use a chisel is because you could toss it and nobody would look at it and go, that's a murder weapon. That's true. That's I wonder the if they only... wrapped it um, for fingerprint purposes so that then they could unwrap the tape and no fingerprints maybe? I mean, but then you can just wipe stuff. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know. But uh, anyhow, we've, we've focused on this for quite a while. They drove around for four hours waiting for nightfall with this body of a child on the floorboard they even stopped for sandwiches and drinks these chuckle fox all right i i do have the uh the shakespeare insult mug i think this is a good time um let's see uh they are okay this is to both of them thou art a boil a plague sore there you go there's some good stuff on you here. You think that counts as cutesy? No. No? No. I want to see them going through the drive-thru and trying to explain why there's a dead body in the back seat. Oh, boy. I have one just for Loeb. Highly fed and lowly taught. <laughs> oh. Oh, Shakespeare. He's in the grave now. <laughs> so, yeah, they, they finally, uh, nightfall happens. They take him to Hammond, Indiana, which is 25 miles south of Chicago. They strip the body. They douse the face and genitals in hydrochloric acid and dump the body in a culvert. I, 14-year-old boy, if you do the genitals, it's going to be harder to figure out. It's going to at least buy you a little time to figure out whether it's a boy or a girl. But it really didn't. No, it didn't. (laughs) It didn't matter one way or the other. It was so dumb. These fucks were caught almost immediately. Yeah. So uh, they get back home and word's already out that Bobby Franks is missing. Leopold then phones Mrs. Franks with the name George Johnson and says her son is kidnapped and instructions are to follow. So they do all their little chores. They mail out the ransom note. They burn the clothes in the basement. They clean the blood out of the vehicle. And then they chill out with some cards like you do after you've just committed a heinous murder. We've stolen 70 years from somebody. Do you have any eights? <laughs> Go fish. So, no, they were probably playing bridge. <laughs> well, I guess there was only two of them. But So, uh, if you want to hear a story about a murder involving bridge, now be that the card game, the architectural, architectural construction, or what was the other option? The sex act. The sex act. Check out our Patreon. So... They, uh, at one point during this, uh, the chauffeur, I think it was Leopold's chauffeur, Sven mm-hmm. England, comes out and sees them cleaning the blood, which they claim is red wine, which does actually tie in with their alibi of drinking in the park. So, um, we, we didn't murder anybody. We've just been driving around drinking. Exactly, it yes. It was okay back then. Well, I guess It so. was really pretty, it was pretty okay. I mean, yeah. even in It's a Wonderful Life, when he wrecks into the tree, the cop's like, get home, George. You're drunk. <laughs> like... Yeah. So, like, it wasn't so bad back then. You didn't have to go to jail. Hey, I was a little Susie and Georgie. Susie's, what, seven? Georgie Jr. is eight? Here's a pack of cigarettes for each of them. <laughs> I mean, times were different then. Mm-hmm. Marlboro for kids. Well, if you're eight and you're working in a coal mine, you're allowed to smoke cigarettes this and drink is, and drive if you want. This is true. Whatever. <laughs> so the next 
day, uh, the Franks family gets a ransom note, uh, which the mail was, I mean, I know that they lived right across the street, but they did mail it out. They didn't hand deliver it. The mail is very fast. I can't mail something out one night and have it arrive the next morning. Although I will say we were very surprised. Jackson ordered a pair of earbuds for me. And it was like they arrived, like, teleported to my house. (laughs) They were supposed to arrive, like, the next week, and they were there within 36 hours. Like, he he was like, what is this box? What is this? And he's like, he's walking him back up to the car. He's like, it's your earbuds. I was like, what? Does Sony have some sort of magic that we don't know about? I just pictured, like, a choir of angels, like, yeah, and uh, like one of them gently places it on the front doorstep, rings the doorbell, and ascends into heaven. And these earbuds are that good. Wow. So uh, they, uh, the Franks family gets this ransom note, and then Leopold calls with some more ransom instructions. Now, this ransom note was said to be unusually literate, and I have. Do you want me to read it? Yes, please. I, I would like to point out that it begins with "Dear Sir." Yeah, yeah, it because does. they did not know who they were going to end up sending it to. Exactly, they didn't have the 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 two address, the recipient's address, on the envelope until after they committed the murder. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the whole other the rest of the envelope was made out, but except that part. Dear sir, as you no doubt know by this time, your son has been kidnapped. Allow us to assure you that he is at present well and safe. You need fear no physical harm for him, provided you live up carefully to the following instructions and such others as you will receive by future communications. Should you, however, disobey any of our instructions, even slightly, his death will be the penalty. And then what follows is a summary of the instructions, or what follows is the instructions, a summary of which is don't tell the police. If you have already, don't tell them about this letter. We want you to get $10,000 in bills, old bills. They're, They're very clear about old, unmarked. By noon today, make it 2,020s and 8,050s, and that all told would be $148,000 in 2020 dollars. Um, and we'll put that ransom note up on the uh, social media because it's all over the place. You can find it very easily. Um, the police found that the note was written on a late model Underwood typewriter with a defective T and F. Mm-hmm. The literary linguistic type nerd in me really was like oh good work policeman so uh the franks family had already called the police but the police decided we're not going to file a report just yet because we don't want word to get out we want to try and get ahead of the kidnappers and send out some some cops to work some leads so if you know the kidnappers don't think that the cops have been called then we can work a little bit more in the clear and and see if we can figure out what's going on here so the first step of the ransom plan is that Jacob Franks, Bobby Franks' father, is to get into a cab that's being sent to his house. And he's just about to get into the cab to start this whole ransom plan, and then the phone rings. And it is news that a body had been found uh, by a Polish immigrant who uh, worked on the railroad named Tony Minky. And they had found, uh, the body had only had like one sock uh, stocking on it nearby, uh, and also a pair of horn-rimmed glasses had been found by the body. Initially, these glasses are assumed to belong to Franks, and Tony Minky even takes the glasses and puts them on Franks, which is so much like a my girl moment. <laughs> like it's just Aww. like, <gasps> but his glasses—he can't see without his glasses. It just—it hurts my little twelve-year-old heart, or however old I was when I saw that. I am sure if I played it now, you would still sob openly at that part. Oh, I absolutely would. <laughs> I, 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 I I watched the Good Place finale 
Valley last weekend, and I just basically... Oh, I cried. Oh, I sobbed. I, yeah. I went through seven Kleenexes. <laughs> like, I'm just, Jackson's sitting there like, he, he enjoyed it and everything, but he doesn't cry at stuff, and I'm just like... <laughs> Not cheaty. Not cheaty. Okay, I'm going to start again. <laughs> you need to watch The Good Place. No, I don't watch TV, really. No, it's very good. Um, so, uh, they... Uh, where the hell were I? <laughs> okay. You're putting the glasses the on. The my girl moment. That's right. The my girl moment. Uh, they put them on uh, Frank's. Uh, so initially the, the, the idea is they're his. But then when his father goes to identify the body, he says those aren't his. My son had perfect vision. And so that is the first clue that these glasses that are just going to be a huge part in the case. I just want to see like one dick cop going, not perfect enough to, uh, to, to see the chisel coming towards him. Mm. That's when a detective really is a dick. What, too soon? <laughs> <laughs> so at first, the police are looking at teachers at the Harvard School and a druggist who had recently attempted suicide. I don't know what... There must have been something else about him that made him suspicious because just that doesn't seem like enough. If he's going to kill himself, he might try to kill other people. There you go. I guess that's <laughs> it. <laughs> if you're suicidal, clearly you're also homicidal. The logic follows. It's like, you know, if you find a handkerchief in a house with initials on it, clearly it belonged to somebody else who didn't live in the house, even though the initials are the same as the person who lives in the house. Yes, I'm still stuck on that. That's it's a clue. <laughs> so uh, the, the glasses set them down a different path. They made them start looking elsewhere because the glasses, uh, they, they decided to try and figure out where they came from, and they discovered that they had a special hinge mechanism, and they were one of only three pairs with this hinge mechanism that had been sold in the Chicago area. One of them belongs to Leopold. Yes, it does. One of them also belongs to an attorney who 30 years later would deny a final stay of execution for Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Mm -hmm. Well, I do declare. Mm -hmm. And I like how the other one belonged to a lady. A lady named Marie who kept hers as a sort of family heirloom. There is an email to the, uh, if you listen to the sources at the end, of uh, famous, hang, give me a second, let me get back to page one, uh, famoustrials.com, uh, a lady, or a gentleman sent an email, he was a, a descendant of the lady Marie who got the, who had the, the final pair of glasses, and the cops actually came to her where she worked at the bank, and they took her back to her house because they wanted to see, did she actually have the glasses? She did present them with the glasses, and they were like, okay, we're going to take these downtown, and she was like, eh, 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 no, you're not. If they're going to go, I'm going to go with them. Uh, and so she goes with the glasses, and so basically like, they kept these glasses in the family, like, stored them very carefully in a case for <laughs> for decades. Decades! They, they still, they might still have these glasses. Part of the email was him being like, so if you know any collectors who might want one of the other pairs of glasses you let me know maybe yeah. maybe get in touch <laughs> give me a ring so yeah they uh they figure out you know all these belong to somebody who might belong to somebody who lives a couple blocks away from the murder victim and so leopold reads about the glasses in the paper and he not very well because he didn't have his glasses <laughs> well the thing he was wear them. yeah he hadn't worn them since march i don't know what the hell he was doing with them in his pocket Maybe just in case? No, he had him in his birding suit for when he went bird watching, and that happens to be what he wore for the murder. Oh, to that's right. Okay. Yeah. All right. Makes I sense. have a special pair of clothes just to look at birds in. He did, because he was that guy. Jesus Christ. I fucking hate these guys. <laughs> no, right? <laughs> So he he does read about the glasses in the paper. He's thought about going in and claiming them, but Loeb talked him out of it. Uh, the quote that he, he, he later quoted Loeb many, many years later. 
Make them come to you. Then, if worst comes to sausage, yeah, you can be so surprised that the glasses are yours. Then's the time to tell your story about losing them birding. Losing the glasses, going birding, which was his story. Well, now, this is actually awesome. So the police brought him to the LaSalle Hotel where he gave the story about how he, he tripped and fell and they must have came out of his pocket while he was trying to take a shot at that's, that's a Wilson's fallow rope. I guess it's, I don't know if that's a type of bird, whatever. But um, anyway, so they actually made him demonstrate mm-hmm. how they would have come out of his pocket by tripping and falling in front of them. Just for fun. You know those cops had a great day. Mm. They're like, oh, look, glasses didn't come out of your pocket. Wonder how that happened. Because at this point, here's here's something that you shouldn't say. If you're ever taken in for questioning, be you guilty or innocent, whenever they say, did you kill anyone? You should not say, if I were to murder anybody, it would be such a cocky little son of a bitch as Bobby Franks. Don't say that to the cops. Yeah. Because they a... go, your glasses are found. He lived next to you. And you just said that. <laughs> Should we just, like, attach the electrodes now and flip the switch? Yeah. And when when I first read that, I was like, speaking of cocky sons of bitches, ever look in a mirror, you murderous mm. twit? Hmm? This episode of Old Timey Crimey is sponsored by Podcorn. Podcasting is, for many of us, a labor of love. It really is, but that labor of love, man, it's it's got some costs. There's hosting, equipment, research materials, I could go on. So, if you're a podcaster who wants to get a little more out of it, you need to check out Podcorn. We've been with Podcorn since they first started, and we are loving every aspect of our experience. We can easily connect with potential sponsors for opportunities like host-read ads, interview segments, topical discussions, and more. I really like how we can set our own rates. It gives us so much control. And I love how easy it is to find opportunities that are right for us. There are plenty of sponsorships just waiting, and all you have to do is browse through, pick one, and make a pitch. Even their customer service is top-notch. The one time I had a question, it was answered super fast, and they were so friendly and understanding. And we get so excited every time another proposal gets picked up. Money, money, money. (laughs) Yes, we do, Scott. Not only that, but everyone we've worked with, the sponsors and the people at Podcorn, has been so cool and down to earth. With Podcorn, there is no middleman. Podcasters of all sizes can collaborate with brands directly without any exclusivities. You never give up any rights to your podcast, and Podcorn is here to support you at every step and ensure you're protected and compensated for the work you do for brands. Click the link in our show notes to sign up to Podcorn and start browsing sponsorship opportunities. Get paid for what you love. So, uh, but we're not at the point where the, the glasses thing, they're, they're still they're still free men for the moment. Um, on May 25th, uh, Loeb at 2 a.m. prize the keys off of the typewriter with pliers. Then they bundle up the keys and toss them off the uh, Jackson Park Bridge, I think, along with the typewriter. By the way, Jackson Park, I took a look at it. There is now a dog park there called... Oh, you know what it's called. Jackson Bark. Mm. Motherfucker. <laughs> they also burned a car robe that had some contact with the body. They used it to carry the body to the, the place where they dumped it. And I was like, what the fuck's a car robe? So I looked that up. 
it's a carryover from the days when they had sleighs and carriages. You can see people, you know, like driving in a sleigh in the wintertime and they have a, a lap robe sort or a lap blanket. It's basically that. You can snuggle under it while you're riding in an open car. Some cars even had a rail that you could hang yours on for storage. Some of the robes had foot pockets. They had hand muffs sewn into the, the inner linings. You could keep your hands warm. Uh, some of them had chest protectors for some reason. I don't know why. Oh, there was a <laughs> and some of them were like proto snuggies that you could fasten yourself into. What? Uh, the first time I saw that commercial, that was so fucking stupid. The snuggie commercial. Yo, my kid had four snuggies. I'm not even kidding. People kept giving us snuggies. Jesus Christ, snuggies were so stupid. And I saw it, and I instantly wanted to change the change the TV, but I couldn't do it because the remote was under the blanket. And it was too cold to get out. <laughs> But if you actually walk around in a Snuggie like my kid did, it's really creepy because it looks very much like a cult. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And she would just wander around my house with different colored cult robes. Tiny little cult member. The cult of comfort. (laughs) So Loeb actually stayed quiet, but Leopold, like we said, would not shut up. He was talking to police. He was talking to the reporters. I can imagine Loeb sitting there being like, and you think I'm the dumb one? Yeah. Really? Really? Let's think about this for a minute. Oh, wait, you can't because you won't shut up. So, let me get this straight. What would you do to if you found Bobby Frank's body? I'd stick my dick in it. <laughs> no, Jesus, Leopold, <laughs> shut the fuck up, man. So, the same day that they pry the keys off the typewriter, Leopold is brought in for questioning at the state attorney's office. This is Robert Crow. Um, and then that's the whole, the whole glasses thing happens. They make him trip several times. It's all, you know, very, uh, very physical comedy, you know, it's, it's a real vaudeville act right there in, in the state attorney's office. Hey, Officer Jenkins, go put on yakety sacks. We're going to make <laughs> him run real quick and trip. <laughs> and the funny thing is, is that they were in his breast pocket, he said. So you can imagine something coming out of your, your, your pants pockets, but it's really hard for something. You Gravity doesn't work that way, dude. Like, you got to really like, do a why, cartwheel, maybe? Mm-hmm. Why didn't he think to do a somersault? Like, I tripped and then did a somersault. Even then, like, your body is compact. You're really going to have to work to get them out. Well, I don't imagine he was very athletic, so I feel like he could have made it happen. Maybe. And see, here's He's so fucking smart. <laughs> five minutes. Five minutes into this, and I have a goddamn alibi that he could have used if he just would have put some fucking thought into it. Like, why did he have to tell them they were in his pocket? He could have easily said, oh, I had them hanging here. And whoops. No. Oh, you know what? I keep them in the same pocket that I keep these little set of opera glasses that I use to look at birds. Whenever I pull the opera glasses out, they must have fallen out whenever I was... You don't have to do fucking somersaults now in the middle of the goddamn police department. Unless you wanted to do somersaults. I mean, doesn't everybody... Marcus does backflips for police to get out of DUIs. I mean, it's a thing. <laughs> he uses it to get out. Oh, my God. You don't have to do a field sobriety test. <laughs> like, he gets out and he's like, do you want to see me do a backflip? And they're like, absolutely. <laughs> and he does a backflip. They're like, no, you're good. All right. Now walk the fucking line. <laughs> he does that, actually, because he did balance beam, mm-hmm. so he can do it forwards. And then he doesn't even spin around and goes backwards. Heel toe, heel toe. Oh my god. He has impressed the shit out of so many police officers, and it's just muscle memory for him. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, like, n- not to say he drives drunk all the time, because that's what this really sounds like, but it, I mean, he. Well, you run into DUI checkpoints. You have to, you know, like, deal with yeah, that. Yeah, like, he's he's incredible at the physical tasks. I want a picture like him going, like, like the cop going, like, okay, the backflip was pretty good, and I want you to tap dance while juggling these three lemons. God damn, this drunk test is hard! <laughs> 
So the police do find an empty case matching the glasses manufacturer in Leopold's home. They also find a typewriter, but it doesn't match the one used to write the ransom note. That's because it's his typewriter and he used the stolen typewriter. Uh, So on May 29th, they're both brought in and they give their whole uh, alibi. Oh, we were just picking up rando chicks. Uh, Their names were Edna and May. It's very 1920s. That's a horrible thing to have to yell in bed if you're fucking somebody. Edna. That's my grandmother's name. That's my grandmother's name. (laughs) Wow. Mine, my grandma was Mildred. <gasps> That's another one of my grandmothers. Mildred. It was my great grandmother. <laughs> I don't think any of those are my answers to security Y'all questions. Y'all are getting hacked. It's always, uh, I never do like mother's maiden name because I can never remember how to spell my mother's. No. So I'm like, I've had to call her up and be like, how the hell do you spell your name again or your maiden name? Any, any longer. It's like the security questions are ones we can make up yourselves. So I'd always make them something impossible for anyone. What toy would you grab if your house was on fire? You know, good luck, buddy. Good luck out of 4,000 Transformers. Good fucking luck. Well, what you should actually do is you should just make them, like, nonsense answers. Like, what's your mother's maiden name? Giraffe. You know. I'll never fucking remember that. Yeah, <laughs> I'll forget it after 30 seconds. Yeah, they're both brought in. Uh, they say that they were off uh, with the girls. They were in Leopold's car. They dropped the girls off. And that was that. Uh, Leopold is questioned for 30 hours. Jeez. This is a fucking marathon. He talks, I mean, the, I think the, the thing is, is that he will talk at length about himself and his heroes. And so they, they, they can just get him to ramble on about his intellectual pursuits. He talks about uh, his heroes, Oscar Wilde, Nietzsche, and Epicurus. Uh, at one point they say, what about Socrates? And he says, I never thought a lot about that old bird. Like he knew him. Mm. Right, yeah. Like, like you know, I went for coffee with him once and he was just kind of boring. It's I don't just, know. It just, most- I didn't see it going anywhere. Fucking Socrates, I had a coffee, he had a hemlock tea. (laughs) And then at the end, he went, what do you mean hemlock tea is poison? No one ever told me. So they're actually just about to let him off. They're thinking maybe this is some crazy coincidence with the glasses and everything. And then they question the family chauffeur, uh, Sven England, who we mentioned earlier. And Mr. England, he thinks, you know, I can help clear Leopold. He says, yeah, yeah, Leopold's car was in the garage all night that night. I, 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 I was fixing it. And, and his England's wife is later like, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, it, it was there. And so that's basically like, okay, all right, now we have something. Because, you know, if they say they're in the car and the car's in the garage all night, we've blown a hole in the alibi. So as soon as they tell Loeb about this, he, he just spills everything. Just completely, I just imagined him standing there. He's quiet, won't answer any questions. They're like, by the way, we know that uh, Leopold's car was uh, in the garage all night. And all of a sudden, it's just word vomit. <laughs> like, he's like, oh, my God. And uh, was he speaking in tongues? Yes, he was. And he says, uh, <laughs> he says that he drove and Leopold killed Bobby Franks. And then they go to Leopold and they say, well, Loeb confessed. And Leopold is like, well, I drove. And Loeb killed Bobby Franks. These two are very quick to turn on each other. Leopold said, quote, if I'd have only known that Loeb was preaching, confessing, if I'd known that, I would have killed myself there in my room. Do you recall when I was standing at my desk? I had my hand on my gun. But before I killed myself, I had to put a few policemen out of the way. Leopold begged Loeb. He said, please admit that you were the one who did the murder. And Loeb said, you want to do the quote? Yeah, I, I, I don't have the quote in front of me, so let's see. I was so annoyed by it that it took me seeing it three times before I would actually put it into my document. 
Momsy feels less terrible than she might, thinking you did it, and I'm not going to take that shred of comfort away from her. I'm innocent. Ha 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 Only a twat like Loeb would call his mother Momsy. Momsy. Oh. With a P. With a P, yeah. Momsy. It is so ridiculous. That sounds like some sort of disease kids got in the 1700s. <laughs> I have Momsy. Oh, no. Oh, little, little, little Sarah has Momsy, and I fear for her life. Oh, dear God. <laughs> The, the the buttocks have swelled to an incredible size. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> the look on Amber's face is... I feel for her life because she is dummy thick. I am concerned for you. <laughs> Just in general. I'm going to keep my phone handy in case Amber makes that expression again. I can real quick get a picture of it and that can go up on the social media. We need some of Amber's facial reactions. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So there's one eyewitness that saw them driving just before the kidnapping with Loeb driving and Leopold in the backseat, he says. So that is one, like, uh, most people look at all the evidence and they say, Leopold driving, Loeb did the killing, but that one eyewitness kind of pokes a little hole in that, so I don't, I don't really think we'll ever know. You know what, though? They actually look quite similar. They do, they do. I could see it being, them easily being mistaken for each other. Because they're like, oh, this one's weird looking, and this one's so handsome. And I'm like, they look like the same guy. <laughs> Basically, yeah. And then you shave their heads for their, their booking pictures, and it's like, uh, twins? Twins? Yes. Like, one eye, one guy's eyes were a little bit bigger, I mm-hmm. guess. But, like, I mean, they didn't look dissimilar. That is fucking the height of narcissism. You'll only have gay sex with somebody that looks like you. That's well, what most that's... people are attracted to, is people that have similar features, so that when they have babies, their babies look like them. Guaranteed. That is that is one of like the subconscious attractions to people is they have features that you either find desirable because you want your kids to look like that or they're close enough to yours that you want babies to look like you. I've seen the kids you have. I don't want kids. <laughs> I know, but they're beautiful. <laughs> they are beautiful. They're also loud. <laughs> they're going to be terrible humans, just like their mama. So, uh, regardless of uh, you know all the who did what. They both said they did it to commit the perfect murder and become Ubermenschen. And Leopold actually expressed disappointment that he didn't feel any different after he murdered someone than before. Where's my mug? Where's my mug? Uh, uh, may I pick one? Yes, absolutely. May I pick one? I saw one here. Uh, Leopold, you are all the infections that the sun sucks up. Nice. <laughs> That's a strong one. Excellent. So on June uh, 1st and 2nd, they're actually being kept uh, at the Windermere Hotel, which is a swanky place. Um, They just rebuilt it that year or the year before. Um, Notable guests would include comedy duo George Burns and Gracie Allen, Thomas Mann, Edna Ferber, I kind of know those names, Herbert Hoover, I do know that name, Mm -hmm. and Philip Roth. One of my favorite quotes about life is from Gracie Allen. Ooh. I love I love Burns and Allen. Uh, there is like one episode of the show where he uh, like Burns uh, takes an experimental drug that might let him either kill him and turn him into an idiot, or let him live to be a hundred, which I think is fantastic because George Burns did live to be a hundred. It worked. Exactly. <laughs> but Gracie Allen kind of had this high voice like this, but she had this great saying: "Never put a period where God puts a comma." Oh. I love that. I like that. Yeah. 
One of my favorite quotes. I love that. I feel like this is going to just lead to like one big run-on sentence, though. <laughs> For just commas. <laughs> Comma. Com- no periods! <laughs> I've had students Menopause. who write like that. <laughs> I must be there then. Oh, okay. <laughs> now when my students uh, have run-on sentences, I'm going to be like, oh, they must be Gracie Allen fans. Mm-hmm. There you go. And they'll go, what? Yeah, exactly. Who? So uh, they, uh, Leopold and Loeb, take detectives on basically a murder tour of uh, the South Side. They show them all the horrible highlights. The typewriter uh, is found. Um, uh, they show them where they dumped it. They show them, you know, like, there's basically everything. And I actually have a map uh, of the actual crime. I'm also going to put up on our social media of the different, you know, like, places where everything occurred, where they picked Bobby Franks up, where they killed him because they waited until they'd driven a couple blocks, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and uh, on her, a couple days later, June 5th or 7th, uh, divers find the typewriter in the lagoon. And the jig is fucking up. Um, I think the jig was up. The jig was up for yeah. a minute. It's like officially up. This is this is. They get arrested. Leopold uh, supposedly said he'd just been looking for adventure and that quote murder is not a crime. My crime was in getting caught. End quote. And I hate people who think that way. Um, he said he he. They asked him where did this come from? What was the quote original nucleus of the murder idea? He said it was, quote, a pure love of excitement or the imaginary love of thrills doing something different. And it just is so shallow. Go and fucking hang gliding, buddy. Exactly. Yeah, get your adrenaline some other way that doesn't involve taking somebody else's life. So, the trial. Wow. Cook County Courthouse. Loeb's lawyer is none other than Clarence Darrow. Now, if you don't know who Clarence Darrow is, Clarence Darrow was very famous. He did the Scopes Monkey Trial, which had nothing to do with, with mouthwash, to my great surprise. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but you will probably know Clarence Darrow best as the chicken lawyer from Futurama. Basically, yeah. Yeah. That's who he was. I'm just a simple country lawyer. And, yeah, that's essentially... Where that came from, he was known as the sophisticated country lawyer. It was rumored he was paid one million dollars, but it was actually seventy thousand. It was just seven. Still, <laughs> yeah, pretty still, good. Yeah, and uh, he, after after it was rumored that he was paid a million dollars, he probably should have been like, so, um, y- you know, I, I know you've got it. So oh, maybe give it. I'll bill you for the other nine hundred and thirty thousand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and this was it commenced the trial started on July twenty first and it was billed as the trial of the century. It was the third one at that point in time. We're in nineteen twenty four people. And we've already covered one of them, episode twelve, the murder of Stanford White. That was mm-hmm. the Harry Thaw trial. So yeah, you have um uh basically Darrow talks them into pleading guilty because he could see that if they tried to go for not guilty by reason of insanity, a jury would not go for it. It, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't hold up. They knew that they were murdering somebody. Exactly. And also, if they put in a guilty plea, then a judge would do the sentencing. Whereas if they went for the full trial with a not guilty plea, even if they got, you know, even if the verdict was guilty, the jury does the sentencing, mm-hmm. or did. I don't know if they've changed things. Or at least does a sentencing recommendation that the judge will generally follow. So it really wasn't even a trial. This trial of the sen- the, the century was the sentencing hearing of the century, essentially. Well, they, they did actually, for a little bit, try the psychiatric testimony. 
And um, the issue that they had is they would find a psychiatrist that would say, yes, I don't think they should be held accountable. And then the defense, or, or I apologize, um, not the defense. They are the defense. The prosecution. The prosecution would then find another psychiatrist to be like, no, they are. This went back and forth through four or six different psychiatrists. Oh, well, the, the Robert E. Crow, the state's attorney who tried the case, pulled in a hundred witnesses. The defense tried to get Sigmund Freud. <laughs> he no, was ill. Nobody should get Sigmund Freud. He was Come Ill. on, Freudy. Look at the middle name. It's Freudenthal. <laughs> yeah. uh, this is going to be good publicity. So, yeah, the defense basically went with their... their Argument was, uh, or the motivation was, that the murder was, they, they both wanted to deepen the relationship. Um, they had, te- in, in addition to all the, the psychiatric experts, they had testimony involving childhood neglect. This is where the sexual abuse came up regarding the Alsatian governess, quote, or nicknamed Sweetie. They talked about endocrine gland problems, general delusions. This is basically, this isn't even any sort of proof that's supposed to say they didn't do it. This is supposed to be mitigating circumstances to keep the penalty lower and try and evade the death penalty. It's, you have, when you have sentencing, you have mitigating and aggravating circumstances. The mitigating circumstances are the one that's like, well, maybe he had a, not a great reason for doing it, but I can kind of see, and maybe it, it, they, they should be held a little bit less accountable. And aggravating circumstances are like, yo, look at these dickwads. You see what they did? You see what they did? Maybe, maybe the highest penalty. I'm going to blame my endocrine glands on everything. If yes. I get pulled over for speeding and I'm not, and I'm not wearing my seatbelt, officer, you got to understand. I have dysfunctional endocrine glands. <laughs> Scott, why are you late for work? Endocrine glands. Man, just what can endocrine I say? Glands. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, and the prosecution, it's because nobody really, this, there's so many f- theories floating around about, you know, actual motivations and why did, because when you have two people, it's like, well, they, can they have both had the same motivation? The prosecution said that they had to pay off some gambling debts, so, so they murdered for the money in order to, to do the ransom. Um, and also so that Loeb could, quote, have something on Leopold to keep Leopold from constantly asking for sex. So you have these two opposing sides, and it's not even for guilty or not guilty. It is for a month arguing whether or not uh, it should be life or the death penalty. So it's not, it's how guilty. It's how guilty, how yeah. Guilty, yes. how, how bad is the punishment going to be? Well, and here's the thing that I, I think we're kind of like glancing over is at the time, these guys were 18 and 19 years old. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They were not very much older than the murder victim. And I, I think that's something we forget is how cocky we are when we are 18 and 19 oh, years old. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it, it's kind of like... Yes, we're like, oh my God, they're assholes, they're despicable. And yes, they are, but they're also kids, really. I mean, they're kids, and and they didn't get to socialize a lot because they were forced to do study, 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 go. Mm -hmm. And so they didn't have a lot of skills being around people, how to deal with people, what feelings are. To argue with that, Loeb was in a frat. There's, that's that's basically uh, all. Uh, no, it's not great socialization. It's not socialization that's going to make you a good human. But it's socialization. You're no, around people all the time. You live in a, you live in a frat house. Frats are just paying for friends and getting drunk. That's I all it is. Think you can argue that, that about Leopold not having great socialization, but Loeb was known to be a great socializer. I, w- <laughs> I want to see what this frat was like. 
Because whenever I see a Leopold and Loeb in a frat, I picture I picture like like the the hoity toity ones who team up with the jocks to punish the nerds. Yeah, right? they probably had yacht club meetings. Yes, absolutely, yes, absolutely. they had yacht club meetings in Chicago. <laughs> so, on August twenty second, Clarence Darrow gives his closing argument. It is, ladies and gentlemen, twelve hours, twelve freaking hours. I saw it in one place, I think it was in the, in the Paris Review, it mentioned on the third day, and I couldn't find anywhere else where it actually said, like, whether it actually went into multiple days or not. On the so third I was curious day. about that. On the third day, Clarence split the earth and the sky, <laughs> yes. and he created the oceans and all that swam in them, and said, I'm just a simple country deity. <laughs> <laughs> So his argument is uh, is credited with saving them from the death penalty. And let's get into this a little Just bit. Just like people, fine, we won't kill them. Can I go the fuck home? Will you please <laughs> stop talking in that accent? Um, so the argument he made criticized capital punishment, said it was retributive, re- re- retributive, something Reputative? like that. Retributive? Can I see the word? Yes, you may. Remix. Retributive. I'm going to go with remix. Remix justice. And that justice should instead be transformative. And my phone just fell on the floor. Whatever. Remix. Remix. So he said that Leopold and Loeb were only young and immature, to Amber's point. This was called the speech of his career. He said, I have a couple quotes here I want to go through. Uh, quote, this one kind of got my, got my ire up. I have been sorry, and I am sorry for the bereavement of Mr. and Mrs. Franks, for those broken ties that cannot be healed. All I can hope and wish is that some good may come up from it all. But as compared with the families of Leopold and Loeb, the Franks are to be envied, and everybody knows it. Ooh. I know, right? When you're saying that the parents of the murder victim should be envied as compared with the parents of the murderers, I think you're headed down the wrong. I want to see Clarence taking, like, a ham and cheese tray to, like, the bereaved parents of, like, a family. I see little Johnny drown in the pool. You folks are so lucky. You're going to want to refrigerate this. But he might actually have a point, because not a lot was said about Bobby Franks. But there were some interesting things I found. Um, So he was also on the same path as Leopold and Loeb. He was doing very well in school. He was brilliant, member of the Harvard debate team, Argued against capital punishment, so he would have been there right, right there with him. Um, but his teachers were actually notating things like he was too self satisfied, too self satisfied. He was cocky, just like just like his his second cousin there, cocky. and he was hampered by unpleasant characteristics. Yeah, it's it's not not a lot is said about Franks, but the thing is, is that even if he was headed down that path, there's uh, there's again. There's many opportunities, and that's not to say that he would have become a damn murderer. He maybe just would have been a smug businessman, which is, is fine. But these are people that are used to getting what the fuck they want. Yes, yeah. every single person in that neighborhood, every single child in that neighborhood, I'm sure, was cocky mm-hmm. and had some unpleasant uh, personality it's features. It's a bunch of spoiled rich kids that didn't get raised by their parents. They got raised by nannies and au pairs or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, they're, they're, it, it's the first real case of affluence. Yeah, and to that we have uh, that Clarence Darrow argued that quote, wealth has its misfortunes end quote. 
little uh, taste of the affluenza that there would, would eventually mm-hmm. come with, uh, I think, Ethan Couch. Uh, oh, that was so infuriating. That motherfucker. Oh, that motherfucker. Mow down a bunch of people on the highway and, oh, it's because he's rich. Fuck you. And then, like, fled the country. I think he, I think he oh, killed yeah. somebody else, too. Probably. But he's rich, so it's cool. Allegedly. Yeah. I'm going to go with that. Um, allegedly rich. Another, uh, <laughs> I've allegedly killed somebody else. I'm going to go with this so as not to get into civil trouble. Um, so, uh, quote uh, from Clarence Darrow, another quote from the speech. I do not know how much salvage there is in these two boys. I hate to say it in their presence, but what is there to look forward to? To spend the balance of their days in prisons is mighty little to look forward to, if anything, end quote. And to that I say... What does Bobby Franks have to look forward to, you fucker? I know that Clarence Darrow was a big lawyer in his day and he was big in the ACLU and for that I give him props and everything. But some of this stuff, I get that he was arguing against the death penalty. But at the same time, there are so many immediate arguments that I could stand up and make against it. You know, they took away, yeah, maybe they don't have a whole lot to look forward to, but they took away, like you said, 70 years potentially Mm -hmm. from a a child. And and, and what, what... what could that childhood, aside from the experiences he missed out on and his family seeing him grow up and everything, what could he have contributed to society? I mean, even if he had been a smug businessman, maybe he was a smug businessman who employed a lot of people and or maybe, you know, employed people who cured cancer. Who the hell knows? Mm-hmm. You know, we don't. You, you take away somebody's possibilities and you take away a lot of other possibilities in the world. Maybe they killed somebody who would have one day also killed other people. Maybe they killed the next Hitler. But we don't know because those possibilities are completely gone. Take a look at what Elon Musk is doing. He's smug. Elon Musk is smug. He's so smug. He's so smug, but he's fucking backing it up. His name should be Elon Smug. (laughs) Indeed. Bill Gates. Bill Gates is on the very, very verge of wiping out, I believe, uh, polio. I thought that had already been wiped out. No, smallpox. Smallpox. Oh, smallpox. Smallpox is the only disease that we've forced to go extinct. Polio is so close. And Bill Gates is donating a fucking ton of his money to actually do that final thrust to wipe it out. Yeah, mm-hmm. could have gone. He could have been a smug businessman and philanthropist. Mm-hmm. Bruce Wayne. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Moving on. So, um, regardless of what I think or any of us think about this uh, this closing argument. One newspaper said that the judge, whose name was Caverly, Judge Caverly, and many courtroom observers shed tears, and they, there was a long silence when he finished. And we don't tears act- of fucking boredom, <laughs> tears of joy that he's done, right? Um, and we don't actually know everything he said because Darrow came and took almost 100 pages of the transcript after the trial and never gave them back. <laughs> it's like hey, this part, that's part of the public record, right? I can I can have that for my collection. Yes, copy machines don't exist. I, just, I don't want to. They only gave me seventy thousand dollars. I can't pay somebody to type all this shit up. I just picture the poor like. Poor, like, court reporter oh there. Her hands fucking mangled. Fucking claws the size of goddamn oak trees. <laughs> so, um, we have uh, Crow's response. Crow, remember, being the state attorney. If you kill them, I'll just shut up now. Yeah. <laughs> we can all go home. He called Leopold and Loeb cowardly perverts, snakes, atheists. That's okay. Uh, spoiled smart Alex and mad dogs. And smart Alex, smart Alex. <laughs> and uh, here's a, a longer quote from his his response in his closing argument. Quote, 
Take away their money and what happens? The same thing that has happened to all the other men who have been tried in this building who had no money. Clarence Darrow once said that a poor man on trial here was disposed of in 15 minutes, but if he was rich and committed the same crime and he got a good lawyer, his trial would last 21 days. Well, they got three lawyers and it has lasted just a little bit longer. And boy, must he have been smug when he came up with that. And rightfully so. That is a good argument to take somebody else's words and throw Mm -hmm. them right back in their face. Uh, But still, at the same time, on September 10th, they're both sentenced to life. Mm -hmm. Plus. And I'm glad for it. (laughs) 99 years for kidnapping and murder. Um, the judge basically, he doesn't give Darrow necessarily credit for it. He says it's because of their age, which, you know, as Amber said, they were quite young and because they might be useful for criminology studies in future years for figuring out why this happens, why people do this. Um, in October of that same year, so within a month, uh, Loeb's father died of heart failure. So pretty, pretty quickly. You can imagine it would, yes, it would be a lot of stress on, on a family to go through that. Leopold's father sells the family home. Uh, He would remarry in 1927 and then die in 1929. His other sons, Foreman and Samuel, Foreman, that's quite a name, they changed their last name to LeBold. Just a little, just a little change, just a little one. I'm okay with it. I'm yeah. okay with I'm that. I'm okay with it. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And they continued their father's business until they retired. So they went on to live productive lives. Um, both Leopold and Love eventually ended up in the same prison, Stateville, which sounds like it's out of the Powerpuff Girls. Yeah, I was just going to say. <laughs> Meanwhile, this... back in Statesville. In city of Townsville. <laughs> yeah. Um, actually, real quick, between the, uh, Leopold and Loeb's dad, actually, Jacob Franks passed away in between the two of them. So oh, he actually okay. died early as well. And, um, his wife, um, kind of lost it. I guess right after her son had been murdered, um, somebody went to visit her and she said something along the lines of, well, he should be home shortly if you wanted to see him. Oh, so she kind of went off her rocker a little. So there was a lot of damage done there. Yes. Yes, absolutely. You can see the, the, the ripple effect of damage. You know, it's not just contained in that one action and that taking of one life. You have other possibilities (laughs) being ended as well, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, they basically, Leopold and Love go on to work to incorporate a high school and junior college curriculum into the prison's education system. Uh, on January 28th, 1936, Loeb is 30 years old and he is murdered by fellow prisoner James Day uh, in the shower, which is basically where we always imagine murders to happen in prison. He's stabbed with a straight razor over 50 times. Mm-hmm. I actually did see one source that they were actually cellmates. Oh, okay. Oh, yes. All right, all right. Oh, yes, because Day uh, Day kind of said he was he was tired of Loeb hitting on him and mm-hmm. asking for sex all the time. Leopold goes, nah, nah. It was Day that was asking for sex from from Loeb, and it was like Day had been caught having sex with another another one of the inmates. Mm-hmm. Um, now he Loeb uh, was attacked, fifty wounds, his throat was slashed from behind and uh, if you want to see his body it's still there it's going to be there until 2035 because of that plus 99 years (laughs) (laughs) oh my and and, and to add to that day was unwounded 
So in this in this 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 battle to prevent a sexual assault, somehow he's unwounded, and, and he's kind of praised in the media. It's like, hey, yeah. And Loeb had defensive wounds as well, mm-hmm. in addition to the slit throat from behind and all the stabbing. So basically, and what it came down to was who was telling you the story. If it was attempted assault by a lobe or homophobic reaction to lobe propositioning him, it depends on whether it's the prison or if it's the press. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, the prison basically wants to keep this whole, like, you know, like, they want, it, they want one side of the story and the press is like, eh, I think this other side of the story works better. So there's a funny newspaper ur- urban legend. There's no proof of this. Oh, you saw this too. Mm-hmm. Um there's no proof of this, and actually they, they, they have found uh, papers from that date that show no sign of it. But a lead, which is the first line of any story, um, uh, in a story about Loeb's death. Richard Loeb, despite his erudition, today ended his sentence with a prep- proposition. Mm-hmm. I almost said preposition there because that's the joke, or that that's is... part of it. It's, there's like several jokes in there. <laughs> I can imagine what happened was somebody wrote that as some copy. Yeah. And then it was taken out. It was edited out, yeah. And every once in a while, every once in a while, a few papers get slipped out. You know, they'll go, stop the presses, pull them back. You know, we forgot to take the copy. And a few papers slip out. Whenever I lived in Minneapolis, in the city pages, there was an ad for for ski boots. And I still have the, I still have the, uh, still have the cassette. The the radio the radio the morning radio show hosts were talking about this, and I still have the ad someplace where it said like Gronsky ski boots, and, and beside it, you'll ski like a faggot in these. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> wow. And it could even be that just an urban legend that came from from rumor. You know, mm-hmm. like people in the newsroom talked about it, like oh he came up with such a funny line, but we can't use it. You know, it, that that happens too, and gets like it becomes apocryphal and gets passed down through. You know, from I, I know stories from the, the newspaper where I worked from long before my day because th- those stories tend to get passed around, especially to the newbies. Mm-hmm. And then you go home and you tell your family, and then they go and tell their coworkers. And the only thing that makes me think that your version is probably more correct is that it doesn't seem like it's been mangled like a game of telephone. Right. You know. So. Right. So uh, Day is tried, James Day, uh, is tried, he's found not guilty, and so um, afterward, uh, Leopold kept studying and working, he learned 12 more languages, Uh, he fixed up the prison library, library, (laughs) I'm I'm four, I'm gonna have some biscotti, (laughs) he continued his work to improve the prison curriculum, he actually taught there as well, he volunteered at the prison hospital, including volunteering for malaria experiments for treatments. He got injected. With malaria. Why not? And then whatever treatments, you know, which probably aren't the most pleasant thing either, that was in 1944. In 1958, Leopold is let out on parole. Uh, Yeah, I have, during the parole hearing, and this Mm. was actually kind of, kind of nice. Kind of nice, in in a weird way. So he, at that point, was uh, describing himself as a fat, middle-aged man. And they asked him about about the the Superman quote. Mm -hmm. And he says... I quote, I took a course or two in general philosophy, and he must have been mentioned. I know of the theory, but never read a book by him. Wow. And then when they asked him whether or not he got over the idea of himself as a Superman, he replied with, well, I got over being 19. Whoa. That actually kind of gave me chills a little bit. 
Nah, I thought that was beautiful, though. That's that's it's, him. That's this is a sociopath learning what works best. I'm sorry. I honestly don't think you can look at all the the, the work that he did in future years. I think you can say that he was self centered, but I don't think sociopath. I think maybe he had some sociopathic tendencies when he committed the murder, or you know, was just a 19 year old. But I, I do think that he. I hate to give him... Listen, I am the last mm-hmm. person who wants to give this bastard credit for anything. But I have to give him reluctant credit for a, a lot of the things that he did in the future because it just it felt like it was constantly trying to make up See, for I it. See, I grew up with a sociopath. So I don't, and... I don't know if this helps. So this was actually the Chicago Tribune in 1924. This is okay. actually during the trial. Leopold was actually quoted as saying, it was just an experiment. It is as easy for us to justify it as an entomologist impaling a beetle on a pin. So he really did, I like, I don't know if it was the, the immaturity that he actually thought it was literally an experiment to kill somebody. But then as he got older, I think he kind of... See, I'm of the ilk. Like, And here's the thing. I can't prove it. You can't prove your side. No, but I no. think he just, be, he just learned how to behave more human. I don't think Maybe. it was actually there. I think it's entirely he just, possible, yeah. This is the way I'm going to fake through and not go back to prison because my buddy slash lover got slashed to death in there. And... I, I think Leopold was the more human of the two, though. That is a possibility. But, yeah, I just... It's hard for me. Last week, I had all the sympathy in the world. Mm-hmm. I had all the sympathy in the world for William Minor. I'm sorry. Not for this. I don't necessarily have sympathy, but I can see from from a distant view. You can you can see it either way, honestly, mm-hmm. and I think either way it, it holds up. Either either a man pretending to go for redemption or a man actually trying for it. Um, so honestly, I think I think both of our viewpoints are, are perfectly valid Absolutely. and possible, and we'll never we'll never really know. Um, so uh, he is yeah he's let out on parole. He's been in for thirty four years. He's fifty four years old. That year, same year, he also published his autobiography, Life Plus 99 Years. Uh, basically, there was a lot of criticism because the book swept right past his childhood and the murder and started basically after it. I'm in jail. Yes. A <laughs> uh, quote from the book, quote, My motive, so far as I can be said to have had one, was to please Dick. Just that. <laughs> I, knew, I wrote that especially for you guys. Just that, incredible as it sounds. I thought so much of the guy that I was willing to do anything, even commit murder, if he wanted it bad enough. And he wanted to do this very badly indeed. For the commission of the crime itself, I had no enthusiasm. Instead, I had a feeling of deep repugnance, end quote. Which could also him be rewriting history, because when he spoke about it, you know, in the, in the more immediate aftermath, he was just like, I was just kind of disappointed that I didn't feel different. He didn't say anything about repugnance or anything like that, so... Um, there was a novel written, like a novelization, novel version of the crime, you know, based on a true story, uh, called Compulsion. Uh, and there was a movie being made, uh, from the novel and he tried to sue to stop it from being made due to invasion of privacy and defamation. And it got to the Illinois Supreme Court and they were basically like, nah, I don't think you can really call defamation for something that you did. Um, he then tried to set up the Leopold Foundation, still some of that narcissism peeking through here, uh, with royalties from the autobiography he wrote. Uh, it was to aid delinquent youths in general, um, but uh, the parole board was like, nope, this is somehow against the terms of your parole. I'm not sure how exactly. It was never specific. I wonder, like, I couldn't find anything specific either, but I, I wonder if, if this would be considered 
Like, even though he's not getting the money, his foundation would be profiting from his crime. But I looked that up, and that stuff didn't start until after The Son of Sam, which okay. was many years later. Um, so, uh, and that even The Son of Sam was, because I, I was, I, when I saw about the autobiography, I was like, surely this must, even though he, he's trying to use the proceeds to, to the Leopold Foundation, surely this still must somehow violate the the... the, the the laws because I really thought those were more ironclad. No, they but they were struck down a whole bunch of times, and then there's still some states trying to put up versions of them that will comply with the Supreme Court's um, idea that it not in, impinge upon free speech. Maybe potential contact with children. Yeah, but they didn't really have like a sex offenders list at that point in time either. It might have been a it's, condition of the parole, though. Just maybe just something that you don't do anything related to yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's really hard to figure out exactly why. I would, I would love to get a hold of the actual paperwork. Yeah, yeah, why the parole board was like, no no charity, no charity. So this movie is gaining a lot of publicity, so he flees off to Puerto Rico. Uh, he goes to work at Castaner General Hospital as a lab and x-ray assistant. In a 1960 interview, he said that he was still deeply in love with Loeb, but then he married a widowed florist, as one does when one is still deeply in love with their uh, dead murder partner. Uh, he got his master's from the University of Puerto Rico, and he taught there after that. He worked in the social service program in Puerto Rico's Department of Health, worked for a housing agency, did some leprosy research. He continued his ornithology passion by publishing a checklist of birds of Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands. What a page turner. Oh, absolutely. Uh, published in 1963. You'll turn the pages real fast because you want it to be done. Mm-hmm. That's just a checklist. There can't be that many pages. <laughs> it's probably a checklist with long descriptions, too, and pictures. I'll look up for the pictures. Pictures of birds. The, the Puerto Rican red-chested, uh, red-chested robin sings its lovely song in the springs of the year. Dear God, I miss sucking cock. Check. And <laughs> he used to say he wasn't still. Probably was. Uh, speaking of books, he also said he was going to write a book about his post-prison life with the just wonderful title, Reach for a Halo. Fuck uh, me. Exactly. He right, never, never did. I, don't I no longer feel bad for him. He is a narcissist. Fuck him. Yeah. Well, the medical director from the hospital where he worked, who who had very much praise for, for Leopold, he sent an email also to Famous Trials. This, this website gets a lot of emails from really interesting people in like kind of tangentially involved. Um, and he said, yeah, he said it was either reach for a halo or snatch for a halo. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I want snatch for a halo. And he said for that 500. Well, we'll start praying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the this medical director said that he and all of Leopold's colleagues said no, no, dude, that's inappropriate. That's one way or the other. Whether it's snatch or reach, it just it's just not going to work. None of them liked it at all. I wonder if that's the name of a porn. Snatch for a halo. <laughs> Absolutely, probably I halo for a snatch. Only one way to find out. In uh, in the late sixties, the Leopold Mansion was destroyed. Uh, and on August 21st, 1971, Leopold dies in Puerto Rico. Uh, the cause is heart trouble related to his the diabetes that he had. He was age 66. <laughs> he asked for the D. He got diabetes. <laughs> <laughs> his corneas were donated, one to a man and one to a woman. So there could be one man and one because this was 1971. Mm -hmm. So whoever got these corneas could very well still be walking around with, with murder eyeballs. Murder, well, one each. <laughs> one each. Mm -hmm. Everybody gets one. Murder eyeball. So um, the Franks are all neatly in two tiers in a mausoleum. 
Bobby with his parents and his siblings. Um, and then what I what I found was interesting actually is uh, Leopold and Loeb weren't buried with their families. Loeb, they they hid his body. They, they spirited it away. So nobody actually knows where his body is. After he was killed in the shower, the family took his body and disposed of it. Hmm. And then Leopold obviously was donated to science, so he's also not with his family. So they have, like, burial plots, and they're all together, victim and murderer families, except for actual Leopold and Loeb. Hmm. So it's, that's one of the, like... Honestly, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that, (laughs) because... Just being the a family member of some amazing assholes, the family, like the Leopold and Lode's families are just as much victims mm-hmm. as the Franks are, mm-hmm. in my Absolutely. opinion. Absolutely. Like, it, it tore apart all of the families. Yeah. Yeah, there it goes. Lobes disposed of secretly by his family. So, like, I wonder what they did with it. My thinking is that the family is rich and has uh, easily enough money to pay off, a, 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 like, a, you know, grave digger. Mm-hmm. And he's probably buried unmarked somewhere near the family plot. That's Blen- my thought. Blender and Doritos. <laughs> That's, uh... but, well, they actually felt disgraced by him a second time for dying naked in a shower with another man. Because it was his choice, apparently. Mm-hmm. So, so they felt like he disgraced the family twice. I bet, I bet he's in some sort of dumpster, someplace. Eh, probably, probably. <sighs> all right, is that all we have then? That's all yeah, we have. All right, that is <laughs> Leopold and Loeb. So, uh, if you uh, feel like you learned something from that, if you appreciate all of our hard work and all of Scott's jokes and all of Amber's burgeoning psychosis <laughs> and all of my attempts to wrangle these two. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Poor Christy. <laughs> We're bastards. <laughs> we are. Uh, if you appreciate that, oh, uh, you Yoda. Have, there are several ways. Yes, we have baby Yoda that uh, Scott 3D printed for me. That is awesome. Um, you can show us your appreciation in a couple different ways. First of all, you can come to our social media. We are on Facebook. Twitter, Instagram, I think I'm giving up on the Reddit, man. I just can't do it anymore. That's okay. Um, as old-timey, crimey, on all of those places. Uh, we do have both a page and a group, but the page is just so that we can have the Instagram <laughs> and uh, connected. So uh, go to the group. That's where people are and stuff is. And uh, you also can go to our Patreon, patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. And we have several tiers of membership there with different rewards you can get. We've really been having a great time with our old tiny crimeys, which are available for two different tiers of membership. And you get a special episode every seven to ten days. Extra. They around, you know, like 15 to 25 minutes and we delve into a case that's a little too small to incorporate into the main episodes. And there's some tastes of those in our history if you haven't listened. Um, so we have that. If you're not the monthly subscription type, if you just want to leave a buck on the nightstand, you can do that by uh, using our oldtimeycrimey at gmail address on PayPal. We'll be your cheap whores. Absolutely. <laughs> and we also have an Amazon wish list with uh, lots of different true crime books. If you'd like us to do a deep dive, you can pick a book off of that and, and give it to us. That can be found in the link tree on any of our social media. So so yeah, so um, weekend plans? Me, I gotta go to work. Mm-hmm. But work isn't so bad right now because they got rid of the overtime for the yeah, most part. For you. Yeah, for me. No longer will I have to pull 
like eight hours or 10 hours of overtime a week. Now it's down to just three hours a week. So, and it's one hour a day, three times a week. Yay. Everybody else is flipping out about it. I love it. Because <laughs> I'm so tired of working 12-hour days. How about you, Amber? Um, I don't have any plans. I'm actually still recovering from taking the kids to Chuck E. Cheese by myself. <laughs> Motherfucker. So, I know. I know. And it was the first time they've ever been to Chuck E. Cheese. Oh, God. Jesus Christ. I oh. got emotional the first time I went, and I was 19. <laughs> yeah. I was 38. The first time I went to Chuck E. Cheese, my niece wanted to go. I was with you. Right. Remember that? Your mom was there. Right, yeah. Right. Right. So my niece wanted to go to Chuck E. Cheese. You should have seen his face. It was it was horror. Yeah. <laughs> and it was the thing. I wanted to do something nice for my niece because mm -hmm. she always wanted to. And she lives, you know, an hour and a half south of here. She ain't going to get to go to Chuck E. Cheese. What do I want for my birthday? I want my niece to go to Chuck E. Cheese. So I took my niece to Chuck E. Cheese, my mom, Amber and Carter were there, mm -hmm. and it is a shining tower to the disorder of attention deficit. <laughs> oh no, it got worse. Oh, it did. Oh, it got worse. Oh, okay, so now God. there's no coins, now it's cards. You get a card and you just hold it in front of the thing and it beeps and then you go. Oh. Um, they also now have a Chuck E. mascot that comes out and dances with you every hour on the half. Mm, and oh. there's a special Chuck E. song and special Chuck E. dance. Um, which I was unaware of before I, I agreed to take the kids there. So, yeah, no, I'm still recovering. So this weekend, I'm just drinking. Nice. <laughs> like, that's it. Just drinking. Jackson and I once made the mistake of taking my brother and sister to Chuck E. Cheese on a Friday. Oh. If you want to see what hell actually feels like, Jackson later oh. compared it to that scene in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas where they're in the, like, the hotel bar. With the dinosaurs? <laughs> the dinosaurs, yes. He was like, it was exactly no. like that. No. So, yeah. Like, I, I need to drink now because of <laughs> Friday at Chuck E. Cheese. I, uh, I will be, I have some papers and homeworks to catch up on, grading, and some, some school stuff to do. But aside from that, I think it's going to be um, Jackson and I might go in, uh, up to Altoona and uh, grab a bite and do a little shopping. And also, he might test drive a car or two to see if he can uh, replace uh, the LBC, which is what we call his car. It's a little bitch car. Mm. <laughs> From the day that I was driving his car, and I texted him, I was like, "Your car's being a little bitch." <laughs> Everybody at work with thought it was hilarious. So we, ever since then, it's been the LBC. So. I like it. I like <laughs> it. I do too. So, all right. Well, that has been us for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we hope you enjoyed or mm, yeah, we're fascinated by what you were entertained. Entertained by this. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained by this uh, presentation of uh, Leopold and Loeb. And hey, check out the Enclair uh, podcast. Like I mentioned, it is very good. Uh, and I would like some encouragement for her to get season two out. So, yeah, uh, thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Bye. Finger guns. Bye. My sources for this week are the Paris Review, Wikipedia, and PBS.org. My sources this week are CrimeReads.com by Nina Barrett, SmithsonianMagazine.com, and uh, excerpts from the testimony uh, provided by the University of Missouri-Kansas City Law Department. My sources this week are Crime Archives, Anne-Marie Mannion on Chicago Tribune, uh, the Chicago Crime Scenes Project, Wikipedia, of course, uh, Professor Douglas O. Linder on Famous Trials, and also the Paris Review. That was a good article. It was. It really was. It was.